Chapter 8 of The House of Love. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lois K. The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. Mrs. Wilde's Discovery. When Saturday came, Doris was allowed to have her new dress about an hour before the time to start. How they could ever have got that shade of blue for a fright like you, said Abigail sourly, as she handed the dress and ribbons to their owner, is beyond me. But the choice had been wisely made, for the particular shade of the cloth and the ribbons seemed to bring out the tints of the child's hair and the ever-changing color of her eyes. Doris had been called earlier than usual that morning and had been kept busy every minute with dishcloth and broom, scrubbing brush and duster, knife and mop. She was too happy to know she was tired, and the knowledge that with the exception of her shoes she was neatly dressed buoyed up her spirits to a concert pitch. Grandma hooked her up rather slowly and fumblingly, but nonetheless kindly. It seems to me, Doris, she said, that them shoes weren't ever made to go with a dress like this. I know they weren't, Grandma dear, and you mustn't be surprised to see me with a much nicer pair. As Kelsey drove along with the girls, Miss Graves was at her window beckoning vigorously. She ran out the front door with her apron over her head, bringing a neat black tam and saying, Leave your hat here with me, Doris, and wear this. It will keep the cold out from your neck and ears. But Doris knew that there was another reason for the gift of the cap. Many of the girls in the choir wore them that winter. I have on my beautiful new dress, Miss Graves, said Doris. Well, I hope, child, you will always be happy in it. Goodbye. It isn't any fun having my picture painted, pouted Aurelia. I dread it. You have a much nicer time than me. Oh, don't say me, said Kelsey. Say I. You needn't talk to Doris and I, Kelsey Starr, said Aurelia haughtingly. But don't say I, say me, laughed Kelsey. Oh, Kelsey, broke in Doris, that makes me think about something in Aurelia's Miss Aurelia, corrected that young lady. Well, Miss Aurelia then, went on Doris smilingly, Miss Aurelia's grammar lesson for Monday. I couldn't find the answer to the question. Kelsey was able to explain the difficulty to Doris, but could not penetrate Aurelia's dull understanding. The fact was more and more apparent to Miss Turner, as the lessons went on, that Aurelia was undeniably dense and unpromising. The paper dolls and glass beads had worked for a week or two, but soon lost their charm. The prospect grew daily more dubious. If it were not for what Doris was learning from the questions that Miss Turner wrote out patiently week after week, 
the latter would have felt that she could not keep on. But of this more later. Doris had no time to stop at the Meldons on the account of her private lesson with Miss Courtney, which she enjoyed immensely, and the music of the cantata had to be gone over besides the regular work for Sunday, so she was only just in time for the nursery tea, and the Meldon children were so disappointed that their mother said, Perhaps tomorrow Mrs. Wilde will allow Doris to spend the afternoon with us, and she wrote a note to that effect to send by the two girls when they went home. It included this sentence, I know so well of all the days in the week a mother wishes her family circle unbroken on Sunday, so I cannot think of asking for the loan of your little daughter on that day. But Doris, I am sure, has not been so long with you as to seem one with you, so please be prepared to see her captured by the Meldon family at the close of the morning service. We will send her home all right after supper. Mrs. Wilde stormed over the note. She needn't take it for granted, she said, that I couldn't part with Aurelia on a Sunday. She might have waited till she'd asked and found out. Doris, you can't go. You shan't go, not one step, do you hear me? Doris happened at that moment to catch a glimpse of Kelsey, who had come up the cellar stairs and had one hand curled around his ear as if making a most painful attempt to catch some slight sound of the blast, and she bent to pick up a stray pin from the floor, lest Mrs. Wilde should see how unsteady were the corners of her mouth. It's too bad you can't go, Doris, said Grandma, when Mrs. Wilde was out looking after her chickens. I'd just love to, replied Doris, but somehow I don't feel worried about it. In the house of love, Grandma, you get just everything there is for you. And if you don't get what you want, it is because it isn't yours, and there's something just exactly as good that is yours. You're the strangest child with the oldest head that ever I saw, replied Grandma. The next morning, Mrs. Wilde put on her Sunday clothes as if she were a medieval knight donning his coat of mail. She had the air of an armored cruiser as she bore down the walk to the horse block. There was battle in the air, and she said little. Aurelia was particularly exasperating. Ain't you sorry you can't go? She said several times to Doris. The latter was thankful when the church was reached and she could part with the family. It was no longer necessary to try to hide her dress, but she was glad to don the vestments once more and lose herself, as it were in the service. At the close, when the girls had resumed their coats and hats and returned to join their parents or friends in the church, Mr. Meldon said kindly to Doris, I believe you are coming home with us this noon. I would like to very much, Mr. Meldon, 
but I think Mrs. Wilde wishes me to go back with her. Nonsense. We'll see about that, he answered. Here is Miss Courtney, who dines with us today also. Gladys, please bring our young friend right along under your wing to my wife while I speak to Mrs. Wilde. Abigail had expected to be approached by the ladies of the family, but she had no thought of meeting with the treasurer of the largest stock company in Kent, and as she saw him drawing unmistakably in her direction, her iron resolve weakened, and she cast a glance to one side as if wishing for the support of Thaddeus, who had already gone to get the horse. Pardon me, said Mr. Meldon, coming up and extending his hand, but I believe this is Mrs. Wilde of Deep Furrow Farm. Yes? If I am not mistaken, my wife tells me that you are lending Doris Avery to us this afternoon. Most kind of you, I'm sure, for she has a small solo part in our cantata, and I wish to go over it with her at my leisure. Just then, Mrs. Meldon, Miss Holcomb, and Miss Courtney came up with Doris speaking pleasantly to Miss Wilde and Aurelia, and being introduced to Grandma Lane, whose days in the manor house were forgotten, but who herself knew every twig and bud and blossom on the Waverly tree. Abigail had mentally composed a brief speech on the way to church, which she had rehearsed several times during the sermon and prayers. She was to hold her head very high, conscious that her Sunday suit was all wool, and her hat came from the best milliner in Kent, and she was to say slowly and emphatically, I thank you very much, Mrs. Meldon, but Doris is needed at home this afternoon, and you must kindly excuse her. Then she was to carry off the humbled and disappointed Doris in triumph. At the same time, there was the underlying reluctance to displease these people who had it in their power to open or close doors to Aurelia. Somewhat flustered by the combined assurance of this group of gentlefolk, and yet determined not to be outgeneraled, she was rallying her determination and taking a firm grip on the back of the next pew when Thaddeus suddenly reappeared quite contrary to his custom and said, Jacob, Benny has just got word through the Stovers that his father ain't so well and his aunt wants him to come right over to Westbrook before he goes home and his wife can't go because she left the pork in the oven. And besides, it's too far for the two little girls. He wants to know if we can possibly squeeze them into our wagon and drop them at their house, so long as we always go past that way. And I said that as Doris was probably not going home with us this noon, I thought we could manage it all right. What could Abigail do but to say to Mrs. Meldon, with an attempt at a smile, 
Well, it seems as if Doris will have to stay behind after all. I hope she won't put you out. So Doris remained and was taken home with the Meldons in silent but amused triumph. Immediately upon their arrival, Miss Holcomb, who was a very petite young lady, spirited Doris up to her room and produced from a shoebox a pair of neat kid walking boots, but slightly worn. They are just a little too wide for me, she said, but are almost new, and I believe you could wear them nicely. Just try them on, my dear. They proved to be a very comfortable fit for Doris, and thus it was that when she reappeared in the drawing room, the pretty blue dress was no longer put to shame by the rough calfskin shoes. There was a delicious dinner through which Doris guided herself successfully by quietly taking Miss Holcomb's lead as to knives, forks, and spoons, and the family drew her into the conversation occasionally in a way to make her feel one with them without singling her out by direct questioning. It was indeed a fact that the child felt more at ease and conducted herself with far better grace than when she was passing the plates of food in the wild kitchen. The little Meldon girls sparkled with delight as they were allowed to sit on either side of Doris. Oh, Doris, said Helen, we've looked and looked for the red dwarf and the gold cup in the nursery fire, and we have not seen them since you were here the other Saturday. We thought we found the dwarf's hut just once, but it looked as if it had been most burned down. The white kitty wasn't on the doorstep never, ever, said Edwina, consoling herself with strawberry ice cream. Oh, I'm sorry if the good dwarf has lost his pretty house, said Doris. Perhaps you were mistaken after all. Maybe it was the brown beetle's cabin that was burned. Then perhaps you'll find all the things again for us, won't you, Doris? I'll surely try, she replied. After dinner, it was hard to get the children out for their usual Sunday afternoon walk, and only the fact that it was the one day in the week when their father could take them kept them from clamoring to explore again the mysterious land on the nursery hearth. Miss Holgham and Miss Courtney went upstairs for a confab and a nap, and Miss Courtney said yet again, where, oh, where have I seen that face? It will surely come to mind. Miss Meldon told Doris that it was her custom to rest a while on the library couch and read after the Sunday dinner until her husband returned with the children, and she gave Doris permission to examine the books of etchings and engravings on the living room table 
and to walk through the conservatory at her leisure. So an hour passed very swiftly until Mr. Meldon and the children came in laughing and talking. Then came the visit to the nursery, while Mr. Meldon had his usual nap in his Morris chair, and an hour later began one of the happiest experiences in Doris's life, for in all that the years brought to her of change and sorrow and pleasure, she never forgot that occasion. J. G. Holland once wrote, Oh, sweet first time of everything good in life. And this was for Doris the first occasion when she tasted the delight of music in a cultured family group. For a background, there was the soft-toned, luxurious harmony of the living room itself, the afternoon sun streaming unforbidden through the wide windows with their curtains of delicate cream-tinted net and golden-brown silk, the exact shade of the wall decoration. Several rich rugs in subdued colors from a far land that had centuries since sent the product of its looms by camel train to tent of Arabian sheikh or Egyptian palaces revealed between their edges spaces of polished floor. Before the fireplace of rough-hewn stone where a huge pine log was blazing, lay a magnificent brown bearskin with whose great head baby hands were now free to play, thrusting small gleeful fingers through the ferocious-looking teeth. There was a wide couch also in golden brown, heaped with pillows in varying shades of the same color, among which was the glint of one of yellow silk and the relieving note of a dull blue tapestry. The books of the library had overflowed here on a few long, low shelves, and the few large photographs in their simple frames of dark oak were not too closely hung to deprive each of its full effectiveness. The room was designed for constant use and comfort. Today, there were fresh yellow carnations in the tall glass, and they seemed like a votive offering to the finely carved Nuremberg Madonna that stood on her pedestal of wood nearby, the original of which in delicate grace and tender pathos is one of the joys of the world. Above her, in her corner hung a Nuremberg lantern of iron curiously wrought, framing ovals of amber glass. There were no chairs with spidery, impossible legs inviting disaster, but all were evidently built to companion an interesting book or rest a weary head. At one end of the room stood a grand piano. Here Mr. Meldon took his accustomed place, playing from memory from the master's, sometimes singing a duet with Miss Courtney, or playing the accompaniment to her high soprano as they turned the leaves of the Messiah, selecting here and there a beloved bit. Doris sat rapt, enchanted, alight with a hitherto untasted happiness. 
Then, after an hour, Mr. Meldon took up the Christmas cantata with Miss Courtney and Miss Holcomb, who drew Doris almost unconsciously to herself to the piano and made her so entirely a part of the little group and the music that she was able to overcome all shyness and to sing the part assigned to her with sweetness and expression. It was the part of a child who visits with other members of her family, a destitute mother and children, on Christmas Eve. As she sang, the two young ladies exchanged looks of surprise and pleasure with Mrs. Meldon, and as Miss Courtney watched the girl's face, the recurring perplexity entered her mind. I had never seen her until week before last, but her face is familiar. After supper, Mrs. Meldon ordered the sleigh, and, as it was a beautiful moonlight night, the young ladies insisted on going home with Doris. Nestled between them on the wide seat, with one hand in Miss Holcomb's muff and the other in Miss Courtney's, Doris had never felt so at home in the world before. "'Doris,' said Miss Courtney, "'do you know your mother's people at all?' She hadn't any one left, Miss Courtney, replied Doris, and my father was an only child who died soon after I was born. Mother had promised that when I was older she would tell me a long and interesting story about our people. But she sickened and died very suddenly. She died in the hospital in her sleep, they told me. Miss Courtney tightened her clasp on the hand as Doris ended with a sound of tears in her voice. "'But have you nothing that was hers, dear?' went on her new friend. "'I have a Bible,' replied Doris. "'It is rather fine print, and the cover is quite worn. "'But I love it the most of anything in the world.' "'And is there no name in it?' continued Miss Courtney." There is a name on one of the blank leaves, said Doris, but the ink is so faded I have never been able to quite make it out. All I can read is her book, and under it, look. Both of the words spelled with an E. My mother had the Bible from her mother, who had it from her grandmother. I can make out 1800, all right. Doris said Miss Courtney, with great earnesty. Will you bring me this Bible next Saturday? Certainly, Miss Courtney. But there were very sufficient reasons why Doris was not able to keep her word. When the Wilds had returned home from church that noon without her, Mrs. Wilde was consuming with anger that her plan had been balked. Her unreasonable hate of the orphan child was at white heat. Aurelia, who had seen enough of the Meldon house to know what Doris would have to enjoy all the afternoon, shared in her mother's indignant protest, and would be by no means an easy proposition to administer between dinner and dusk. After the kitchen work was done, Grandma, having performed her share with unusual cheerfulness and animation, Mrs. Wilde took it into her head to go up and inspect Doris's little room. It was perfectly neat, 
her belongings were too few to cause any disorder. Happily, the old white kid gloves with which she protected her hands at night were tucked safely under the bureau. The room was just as it was the night she first came, except for two or three pictures from an old magazine that Kelsey Starr had given her, and which she had pinned to the bare wall. The old Bible lay on the window sill. Mrs. Wilde picked it up for the first time. The pious little lamb-faced beggar, she said to herself, opening the book and casually turning the leaves. On one of the fly leaves something caught her eye. It was the faded brown writing nearly obliterated except for her book and look and the year 1800. Doris would not be back for hours. She took the book under her arm and went downstairs and out to the hothouse where, in the little office where Thaddeus kept his desk and agricultural catalogues and papers, she knew there was a powerful magnifying glass. Thaddeus was comfortably dozing behind the county weekly in the sitting-room. There was nobody around. Mrs. Wilde sat down on the high wooden stool before the desk, laid down the Bible and opened it to the mysterious page. Then, drawing the treasured glass from its chamois case, she held it over the indistinct lines. The glass, like a keen detective, dragged the words from the dim hiding-place of the yellow leaf, and with drawn brows and sharp, eager eyes, Abigail Wilde read clearly as follows. Doris Thorne, nay, Lady Clifford, to her beloved daughter, Agnes, then followed in another handwriting almost illegible even to the glass. Agnes Thorne, her book, the Lord from heaven on her look, May 10, 1800. Mrs. Wilde drew a writing pad toward her and copied the words with pen and ink. She looked startled and puzzled. Something in her memory had stirred at the name of Lady Clifford. It seemed to belong to her days of Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen. She carefully replaced the glass and picking up the Bible and the piece of paper she started for the house. The paper fell from her fingers while she was latching the door of the hothouse, and a sudden gust of wind blew it far aloft and whirled it away out of sight and reach, but the words were burned into her brain. She went upstairs, passed softly through Grandma's room, where the latter was sleeping, and replaced the Bible where she had found it. Then she went down to the sitting-room, shook the fire, put on more coal, and sank heavily into her rocker, but not to read. Her thoughts were too busy peering into the dim recesses of her memory for old records. At last, when Grandma had finished her nap and put in an appearance, Abigail inquired suddenly, Mar, did you ever hear of anybody by the name of Clifford? Oh, what's that, Gail? Clifford? Clifford, she repeated slowly, polishing her spectacles. I dunno, I dunno's I have ever heard the name, Gail. Now, just think hard, Mar. I can almost remember that when I was a little girl, you told me something or other about that name. It had something to do with the ridge, I'm sure. Let me think, said Grandma. 
Let me think a bit. There was a long pause. Clifford. Mm, Clifford, resumed Grandma. Mm, yes, it does sort of come back to me now. It had something to do with the manor house. Grandma's face began to brighten. What was the first name, Gail? Doris, replied Mrs. Wilde shortly. Now I know why there was something familiar about the little Avery girl's name. Yes, I remember what it was. It weren't in my time, though. My grandmother told me. She was an upstairs maid at the big house in those days. The madam in the manor at that time was very young and lively as a bird. Mr. Grammaton Waverley, her husband, had gone over to England after her, and she pined a bit for her old friends in the mother country. So he sent for her dearest friend to come over for a year and be company for her until she sort of got used to the strange land and new faces. The friend's name was Lady Doris Clifford. Why, Gail, whatever made you jump so sudden? Oh, nothing, said Abigail. I only hit my hand on the stove. Do go on. Yes, it all comes back to me now, continued Grandma, with the delight in which one shakes out an old ball gown long tucked away. The story made a lot of talk at the time, my grandmother said. Well, never mind that, said Abigail impatiently. Tell me about it. Well, the Lady Doris Clifford was a great beauty, and she was highly connected, and her people were very rich. Her people had some plan for her to marry somebody they had picked out for her. It was some arrangement that was going to add property to property. She wasn't in love with the man. She was young and didn't know what love really was. And she wanted to please her family and the Waverleys as well. And it was all arranged that her brother and this man were to come over to America after her at the end of the year. And she was to marry him soon after they got back to old England. Those were gay days at the manor house, so my mother said. The Waverleys, for the most part, have been steady, God-fearing people. But that generation raised the dickens. It was the young madam, principally, who set the pace. There weren't nothing bad about her, except that she was awful frivolous and vain. Allas wanted a lot going on, and there was no end to balls and theatricals and big dinners, and often too much wine. Lady Clifford was nip and tuck with Madame Waverley. Oh, it all does come back to me so clear now, just as my grandmother told me. Well, said Abigail breathlessly, well, one day a strange man came to the green. Nobody knew who he was. He took his stand under that big oak at the northeast corner near the iron gate of the manor grounds and took off his hat and began to sing. He had a great voice like a church organ. The young madam and Lady Clifford 
were walking down the gravel path toward the street, and they stopped to listen. All the people who were passing by stopped, those in the wagons and those on foot. Some giggled and made remarks, but the most of them stood stock still in their tracks. My grandmother was young then herself, but she never forgot that day, nor the words the man sang, for afterwards she came across him in some singing book. The words was, The voice of free grace cries, Escape to the mountain. For Adam's lost race Christ has opened a fountain. For sin and uncleanness and every transgression, His blood flows most freely in streams of salvation. It weren't so much the words nor the tune, my grandmother said. It was the man himself. His face was like as if there was sunshine inside of him. When he had sung, he opened a little Bible and read one verse. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. People had come running out of their houses. Madam and Lady Clifford were keeping close behind the hedge where they could hear. And such a sermon weren't never heard on the ridge before nor since. It weren't long, but tears were running down people's faces as he begged them to turn from their idols and follow Jesus Christ. The madam listened with her nose in the air, but Lady Clifford had turned very pale and looked down. When the preacher finished, he made a very short prayer and turned to pick up his hat, and the blacksmith stepped up and asked him to dinner to his house. The people crowded around him and asked questions, and Madam was so curious she told my mother to go and find out who the man was. She came back in a few moments and said that he was what they call a Methodist preacher. Some new sect that was much looked down on, and that he had so turned the heads of some of the village people that they wanted him to speak again, and as it was pleasant summer weather, the blacksmith said that there could be another meeting that night in the field back of his house. Well, to make a long story short, when evening come, there was a crowd of all sorts, and Lady Doris Clifford was there wrapped in a long black cloak and crying as if her heart would break. They had fixed up a bench near the preacher, and when he asked those who wanted to be saved from their sins to come forward and kneel, Lady Clifford went. The Methodists were just starting in in Kent, and some of them were there at the blacksmith's meeting. They were much despised in those days by the other churches, but they seemed to have something that made them very happy. They called it the Witness though I never knew what it was. But whatever it was, Lady Clifford got it that very night, and they said her face was like an angel's, and she turned and spoke to the crowd most beautiful. And just then, the Congregational Parson and the Episcopal Rector came upon the scene with the constable, and they said the whole business was out of order and had got to stop, and the preacher couldn't stay in the town another hour. So, 
He went down to Kent, walked down with the few Methodists from there, and they sang all the way. But what about that crazy Clifford woman? asked Abigail. Well, her troubles begun that night. Mr. Grammerton Waverley and the madam raved and stormed. You see, my grandmother was right there in the upper rooms and heard it all. But they couldn't do anything with Lady Clifford. She was firm as a rock, and when Sunday come, she hired somebody to take her down to Kent to the Methodist service, when the Waverleys wouldn't give her as much as a spoke in a wagon wheel to get there. Things got so bad that Lady Clifford couldn't stand it any more, and she went down to Kent and stayed with some woman who was a Methodist. She wanted to get back to England and tell her people. She thought perhaps she could win over her father and mother. She sold her pearls and bought her passage back. But before that, she was some weeks among the Methodists in New York and married one of their preachers, and they went back to her parents. All my mother ever knew after that was that her family turned her off and disinherited her. And she traveled a great deal with her husband, singing and speaking and bringing many people into the sect. Her husband also had been cast out by his family. His father was a professor in Cambridge University, and his mother was a lord's daughter, and the Methodist was looked down on in those days. When Grandma had finished her story, Abigail arose and went upstairs. She was very white, and her eyes blazed. She went straight to the room of Doris, carefully tore the written leaf from the Bible, came down again, and, lifting a lid on the kitchen stove, laid the page on the red coals and stood watching it burn. She shall never know, she said grimly, and they shall never know. That night at bedtime, Grandma heard about the heavenly afternoon at the ridge. And look, Grandma, said Doris, pointing to the new shoes. Well, I never, exclaimed Grandma. Where'd they come from? They were in the cupboard in the house of love, laughed Doris softly. Doris was sadly puzzled the next day when she missed the mysterious slyly from her Bible. But she had not looked at it for a long time and thought perhaps her mother might have torn it out for some purpose of her own. End of chapter 8